Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Faster Mai and good evening to you. It's Sarah Hendy here with you until just before six o'clock this evening. On today's programme, I'll be speaking to abstract artist Andy McKellar, whose exhibition opens at the Engine House this Friday. And there's also a really lovely treat in store as I get to speak to one of my favourite authors, Tracy Chevalier, who's releasing her new novel tomorrow. As ever, you can find this episode along with many others on the Manx Radio website. You can listen on demand. You can stream the podcast, download the podcast or subscribe for free to receive all future episodes of Spotlight direct to your device of choice. Artist Andy McKellar is our first guest on the programme this evening. I went down to the Engine House earlier today to find Andy setting up his exhibition of abstract paintings ahead of his exhibition opening this Friday evening. So Andy, the work that we're looking at here is abstract and I suppose with abstract art we're always looking for a story behind it. We want to know what you were thinking, why you use that colour, why you scratched away that bit of paint because I mean there are so many layers in your works. Um, We've got so many questions. What would you say if people came to you and said, well, what's this one about? I would try and avoid giving an answer, to be honest, because any answer that's direct will cement how the viewer looks at it. Uh, a phrase that's uh, from someone else that comes to mind uh, that you have to leave a gift for the beholder. Uh, as to what it's about and where it starts, I'd have to say... I start generally, not always, but almost always, with a series of repetitive actions uh, in the way in which I attack the canvas. The idea to, it, it doesn't always show up, but the idea is to produce an element of randomness that is structured. And within this, a story or a picture develops. Sometimes I'll start with an idea for a picture. Experience tells me that goes out of the window quite quickly. Um, sometimes th what I've done will show me what I ought to do to bring it to a picture. And it seems to work quite well. Mm -hmm. So I'm reasonably happy with it. Yeah, That, that organised chaos idea, that is nature really, isn't it? Uh, Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, again, I would go backwards and say that the patterns in nature are very simple, not complex, but repeating those patterns again and again and again, where they're never quite identically repeated, produces fantastic complexity, which has come from something very simple. That's actually what I'm trying to do with these pictures. I hope that the nature of that gives them a feel that is natural and therefore harmonizing with people who look at them uh, such that they remain interesting. There's always different things going on. Um, a little bit like looking at uh, the arrangement of uh, branches in a tree on a winter's day when there's no leaves. The same pattern is repeated again and again and again, but you won't find any of it that's identical. Mm -hmm. yeah. Your processes, they're, they're quite brave and quite bold because um, 
I'm imagining how you got to a place where you felt confident with um, with your style and your aesthetic because it's not necessarily something we would have been led into at school. How did you discover that this was a style and this was the, the these were the media that you um, you feel most comfortable with and can express yourself through? Um, I suppose for 40 years or so, I've been painting as an amateur artist, uh, landscapes, seascapes, uh, the odd figurative piece of work, uh, some of which have sold, uh, and watercolour definitely is a first love. Uh, but I needed more, and I like oils, and I like the way in which you can do things with oils, but I find it difficult to answer that question. It's a bit technical uh, to the way I think. Uh, in practice, I think these are an evolution from landscape. Uh, in a way, they are dealing with the smaller parts of a landscape, the more detailed, the, like, like a picture of the bark of a tree. They're not going outside a landscape tradition. They're, they're in there. Uh, and certainly part of the ideas for this, because uh, again, it, it's the idea. I might ch have a, do a series of paintings on a different idea at some other time. But the ideas behind this, uh, in some sense, do come from, you use the word chaos, but from my limited understanding of chaos mathematics and how uh, simple repeated uh, patterns can be repeated and they repeat themselves at different scales and uh, I'm relying on the fact that I don't quite and I'm not capable of absolutely repeating a pattern so there's variance in what I do which leads to something completely different. Mm -hmm. Are you a big fan of order then? Uh, uh, not a fan of or but uh, happy to use it if the results work mm -hmm. that's that's what I would say. Uh, I think nature is structured but not rigidly so. I think people are structured but not rigidly so. I think too much rigidity doesn't work for people and I think it's true of art mm -hmm. and everything else. But having said that, there's definitely a place for it. Sometimes that's what we need. And how important is playfulness and experimentation in, um, in this series of, of artworks for you? Very. Yeah. How does how does that come into how does that come into play, so to speak? Sometimes I will be deliberately representational, but in a way that's quite abstract. Uh, there is at least one picture here that is quite figurative in nature, and that uh, comes about from using these techniques of re repeating patterns to create an environment within which I can put something. And uh, it was figures and figurative in a playful sense. Uh, I won't say any more about it. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to spoil the surprise. Um, and, and your use of colour, everything's very vivid. And although you've got some that are slightly more muted, they're still very bold. Um, these must be the colours that inspire you. They're not quiet colours in any way, are they? And yet there's a lot of blacks, whites and greys. But next to each other, they're not quiet. No, I, I would say they're very actively painted. I wouldn't say any more than that. 
<laughs> uh, as regards the colour, uh, yes, I do like colour. I like the way in which colours interact. I like the way in which colours uh, flow into each other in the right circumstances. And uh, I will use that if, if it seems appropriate. Mm -hmm. The colours that I see around me aren't necessarily ones that I recognise from our own landscape. And I wonder if you're sort of maybe trying to capture a spirit of something rather than what you see directly in front of you. I'm definitely not trying to capture something that I see directly in front of me. I'm trying to use the way in which uh, nature forms a whole through apparently similar patterns. I'm doing that then to create pictures. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't necessarily have the same colouring by any means. But the patterning and the way it's structured is similar. Okay. So it's, it's sort of a conversation about a landscape and uh, using way, elements in from it in, possibly, a, in a way. Possibly, possibly, yeah. okay. possibly. <laughs> so we're getting deep, aren't we? I, could explain. That's as, I, I don't know if, it, if that even qualifies as an explanation, uh, but it's as much as I could say, really. Yeah. And we're lucky that we can come to the Engine House, we can enjoy your work for um, for a little while. Remind us, you're, you've got an opening event tomorrow, I believe. This is on Friday at 6pm to 8pm at the Engine House in Castletown. Uh, and uh, anyone who's interested is welcome to come along. And the exhibition itself is open from then until I think we're bring, taking it down on the 28th of September, so three weeks. Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. If you've ever seen the film Girl with a Pearl Earring, starring Scarlett Johansson and Colin Firth, or if you've read the book perhaps, you're likely to be familiar with author Tracy Chevalier, an American writer who now lives in the UK, who's well known for having written many historical novels. Tomorrow she's launching her next book, A Single Thread, which tells the story of a group of women in the 1930s who embroidered cushions and kneelers for Winchester Cathedral. Every book is focused around some kind of art form or collection, including tapestries and quilting, and all feature very strong female roles, not necessarily loud or brash, but quietly powerful. I had the fantastic opportunity to speak to her at length today about her creative process, her inspirations and her new novel, A Single Thread. I knew I wanted to set a story in and around a cathedral and Winchester Cathedral has some great stories attached to it. So I went to, I went to visit, I had seen it before, I'd been a few times and I was looking around and and you know, cathedrals are full of incredible um, artwork and and skilled carving and stained glass and all sorts of stuff. And then I looked down and I saw these really bright, crazy cushions and kneelers, um, yellow and blue, full of all interesting patterns and uh, medallions that, that have um, scenes from history, uh, Winchester history all throughout the cushions and I thought these are really interesting and I want to write about these and I found out that they were made by a group of volunteer women in the 1930s and so I thought that's what I'm going to do and 
was only afterwards that I realized that actually of all of the things that are made in the cathedral, that was those cushions and kneelers were probably the only things made by women. Everything else would have been, you know, for centuries would have been the stained glass makers, the wood carvers, the stone carvers, um, the, the architects, the builders of the of the building itself. All of that would have been made by men. And this was the thing that was done by women. And it was for the comfort of people coming to worship, people coming to pray and to listen to services. So um, maybe that is what drew me and I didn't even realize it at the time. I still am learning with each book I write. I still, the whole process of it is is kind of a mystery to me. So um, it was only recently that I thought, yes, this is a part of the women's world section of the cathedral is in those cushions. And the techniques that they've used, there's a whole, it's a whole language, isn't it? What did you learn about, um, about how these, these artifacts were created? Well, there were made. Um, they were designed and organized. The whole, the whole thing is, is made by hundreds of women. But a woman named Louisa Pessel was the main uh, organizer, and she and a friend of hers who's an artist named Sybil Blunt. They did the designs, and she decided early on she wanted loads. She needed hundreds of women to make them. They didn't have to be fantastic embroiderers. Uh, but they did. So she she made the designs relatively simple, and there are only most of them only have six stitches. So if you can master six different stitches, they're not really hard. I learned them myself um, in order to be able to write about them. If you, as long as you combine them in the way that she shows you, and she she would, uh, she made these uh, design sketches and then she'd make a model in in canvas and, and wool that she would give to the embroiderer and say, just follow this. And if you want to choose uh, your blue, special blue for here, you can make this choice. She gave them some individual choices, but in the main, it was just following a pattern. And um, she was just a genius designer. She knew a lot about embroidery all over the world. And so it was, it was, um, she made it easy for the women, even the women who didn't know how to do needlepoint that well, she made it easy for them to follow. And I think that made them feel part of a, of a bigger group that was was doing something special for the cathedral and their contribution to society in a way i suppose as well because it's amazing how you're able to tell the story of the wider world and the world that they're living in at that time through um yeah what seems like very quiet quaint uh, work yeah and and you know it wasn't so quiet then because it was the early 1930s and in the course during the book uh hitler becomes chancellor of germany and this is referred to, um, and also uh, really importantly, women. Uh, the the main character, hero, the heroine Violet Speedwell, she's a 38 year old single woman, and single women at that time were really looked down on and condescended to, and didn't have many choices uh, about their lives. Um, we're much luckier now. We can go into higher education, and we can train for all sorts of careers. At that time, there were very few things that she could do. And it's about her trying to break out of some of the constraints that society has placed on her. And unusually, she does it partly through embroidery. And and how important is it to you that these stories of, um, of these women of these times are told? Because I think, 
largely they would have been uncelebrated. I mean, Girl with a Pearl Earring, um, it, it, you know, the, the main character would have sort of wouldn't wouldn't have had a part in anyone else's story and in uh, remarkable creatures as well. Mary Anning's story hasn't been celebrated in in the way that perhaps you know she definitely deserves. Um, you, you seem to be to be drawn to these characters who um, may may otherwise pass, pass be passed by and yeah. sort of open those up and and share their value and their worth with the world why why is that um why is that a, a sort of a, so important to you i think um it's you know it, it by in the main it's it's women that i'm focusing on not not entirely but i think there are a lot of women whose stories have not been told because history has tended to um to pay attention to those who have power and economic power, social power, political power, and for centuries that's been men. And so the women's stories have been quite quiet and um, and ignored, and I thought maybe it's time to shine a light on them. And so, you know, Winchester Cathedral is a perfect example of that, that there are all sorts of really flashy stories I could have told about the cathedral, but they mostly involved men, and, and this is just shining a light on something that people may ne- never have even looked at before when they go into the cathedral. They look up and they see the amazing stained glass and they see the amazing these carved wooden, what they call bosses that are on the ceilings and all of this stuff was made by men. And then there are these cushions that have just been sitting there for 80 years. And um, it's it's a funny thing enough, the, the cathedral has been great. They've been really um, taking up the book with gusto and, and have been very supportive. They're now thinking, right? We need to we need to write a leaflet, have a leaflet available about with information about those cushions because people are going to want to know. And I thought, well, there's a small victory. Instead of focusing on all the male stuff, let's let's have some information about the women now. Yeah, I was curious about that. Actually, I was thinking if you know you must have spent a considerable amount of time at the cathedral um, in your research and when you were writing this um, this novel. Um, and I wondered if you had it at all at any time, and if there was any reference made to the kneelers, or if uh, I don't know. Yeah, as you say, the the other um, bigger, louder parts of the cathedral were celebrated, um, and the the kneelers and the cushions perhaps not so much. So I I went on a few tours because each tour guide gives you different information, you know, and it fills it out for you. And um, they were incredibly useful and helpful, um, pointing out things. But I think only one of them mentioned the cushions in passing. But I have a fe- <laughs> I have a feeling now that the book's coming out, there may be a few war mentions of them. And in fact, I'm meeting with the volunteers and tour guides um, for the cathedral. I'm meeting them next week to go over some information about the the cushions in case they get asked about it. And I suspect that may have them that may. Um, encourage them to mention them in their in their tours yeah a victory indeed as you say i think that's wonderful (laughs) um and your creative process everyone's is so different what does your are you able to tell us a little bit about what your day looks like when you're when you're working my day is um really varied uh because the the research days are so different from the writing days and then i have other things that sort of creep in other things i've said i do but if I'm researching, I often go to the library, and I um, I like to go to the British Library and sit quietly and take notes and read. Um, sometimes I do that at home. But when it's when I get to the writing stage, once I start, I try to write um, a thousand words a day, which is about three pay three or four pages a day. I write in longhand in a notebook because I find it more organic. I write I write 
at the same handwrite at the same pace that I think I think uh, whereas I type actually very fast faster than I think and so it just feels more feels right to me and then at the end of the day I type into the computer what I've written um, and then the next day I face that blank page again and do the same thing over and over again um, until I've got a draft and then I print that out and I read through it all and I and and usually as I'm going I also reread what I wrote the day before just to get into the swing of it so I can it can feel like it's flowing and um, and then I when I've got the whole draft I redraft and redraft and lots of writing is actually about editing and self-editing and and just looking at a sentence and saying do I need every word in that sentence is there another rhythm I could use that sentence is eight words long and so is the one before it and it all both both start with uh, something so maybe I ought to tr switch it around and have an, a different clause and um, a dependent clause that starts it to break up the rhythm and you know so it's it's a lot about those little moments um, but then you also think how does this paragraph fit into the rest of this page how does this is this pushing forward the story have I characterized this character enough? Have I made it clear what they're like? Um, have I described them well enough? Um, do I need this character? So there's this constant asking questions. And I think that's where people who, who it separates the people who do write from the people who want to write is because it's really hard work, all of that, all the self-questioning and beating yourself up over what you've written. Um, you have to do it and a lot of people don't. And that's, uh, but it's in the editing that you really make something into what it is. Yeah, I can feel that attention to detail in your work. It's it's great to hear you talk about how you go about it because, um, yeah, your, your work always shows me the the richness and the value of the detail, and I can hear that. That's also how you operate as well. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. It's lovely to hear how how people work. Um, and you're very brave as well to face a blank page every day. That can be really overwhelming and um, and sort of I don't know uh, threatening almost in a way. It is. It's exhausting, and um, which is why I like the research part of the process, which is a good six months before I start writing anything. Um, and I, I love the research part because at least I'm reading other people's stuff. I don't have to write it myself. I don't have to create it myself. But on the other hand, if I didn't have to do that creation, I wouldn't be doing the research either. So I wouldn't have the, a reason to research. So I, I know they go hand in hand. And, and actually, it's Writing is kind of like running. Uh, I never, I, I don't run anymore, but I used to run and I, I never really liked it that much, but I liked having done it. And um, and also like the first five or 10 minutes are a bit hard. And then when you get into the rhythm and the pace of the running, you feel okay. And then you feel really good in the shower afterwards. And that's kind of like writing is facing the blank page. It's, ugh, it's so hard. And you know, the first few sentences, ugh, I throw them out, and then I, but then after a while I get into a rhythm, and then I might write something I think, oh yeah, that, that expresses that well. Uh, it may not last, but it, it's working at the moment, and that's a good feeling. And then by the end of the day, when I've got my, my words done, and I think, yes, I have pushed that story forward a little bit, just a little bit, just a couple of pages, but it's, I think it's working. That's a really great feeling. So, you, you know, I have to, I accept that it's hard, but I also, um, appreciate it at the end of the day and I just have I know we're sort of close to the end of time but I just have a couple of burning questions to ask you um okay. mostly for my own indulgence um <laughs> how, how um Alienor is the is the character who I think I I 
felt most. It's so beautiful that she's working on something visual um, without vision and that just allows for so much detail in the it's such a tactile story um we're talking it, here about we're talking here about the lady, lady in the, the unicorn, unicorn which yeah. is a, a book i wrote you know 15 years ago but that's okay i remember it well and it's a it's um uh it's about a set of medieval tapestries that were were created in paris and they they hang there now in the Cluny museum and they were woven in um in brussels and I, um, Eleanor is a weaver's daughter and she's blind. And, um, it was really interesting to do that. I spent some time wandering around the house with a blindfold on just to try to get a sense of what it felt like, what what it felt like to feel things and not be able to see them. And, uh, I talked at one point about, about the feel, she feels the different dyed wools. They're dyed red or blue or green or whatever. And she can feel that each wool is a little bit different because it's used with a different something to dye it with. And so the texture will be slightly different. And I had a blind reader write to me and said, how did you know that that's how I shop for clothes? She said, I go around M&S and I feel the, the textures. I can feel the jumpers and I can tell what colors they are. And I thought, wow, I kind of made it up, but I'm glad to hear it. It made sense. I love that. Thank you. Um, and if Elizabeth Philpot were to meet Violet Speedwell, what would she say Violet leads with? Oh, that's a great question. So Elizabeth Philpot is a is a character in Remarkable Creatures, and she has this theory that everybody you lead with your eyes or your nose or your hands or your hair. Um, I would say Violet Speedwell leads with her chin. She's quite determined. Her jaw. She sets her jaw, and she's quite determined to get what she needs. Like Elizabeth herself. Maybe they would have been yes. friends. Yeah, I think they would definitely be friends. I can't recommend Tracy's writing enough. Her work is so full of such intense rich detail and so sensitively written it's it's, she always takes you on a really beautiful journey in the most unexpected ways so do look out for a single thread which will be in bookshops from tomorrow i'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week but i'll be back next wednesday at half past five with more creative news from on and off the island until then you can stay in touch through spotlight at mikesradio.com Or of course, don't forget you can download or subscribe to the podcast for free on the Manx Radio website. Have a lovely creative week. Slen you.